From CPR News, this is Colorado Matters. Hospitals spend thousands of dollars a night on patients who don't medically need to be there, but who don't have a safe place to go. What one Denver hospital is trying that could revolutionize the transition for vulnerable patients and save money. Then, she's perhaps the world's best-known climate change activist at just 16 years old. And she's in Colorado today. People are suffering. People are dying. Entire ecosystems are collapsing. So how did Greta Thunberg capture global attention? Plus, what goes into writing music for a play that tackles everything from immigration to complex family relationships? And the story behind one of Colorado's most prominent bands, The Burroughs. Show them how you slip now! This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. I'm Avery Lill. Hospitals can't discharge patients who don't have a safe place to go. It's a matter of ethics and also the law. In that case, they stay in the hospital, where it can cost thousands of dollars per night. One Colorado hospital is trying something new. Denver Health will provide affordable housing units to help vulnerable patients transition from hospital to home. Could it be a model for other care facilities? Peg Burnett is Denver Health's chief financial officer. Hi, Peg. Good morning. How much does it cost Denver Health to keep a patient per night? It costs about $2,700 to keep a patient every night at Denver Health. And how many patients do you typically have in your hospital who don't medically need to be there? Well, at any given time, we have between 25 and 30 patients in the hospital that if we had a safe discharge for them, uh, they could leave because we've taken done what we need to do to take care of them, and they're ready to go either to their home if they have one, or a nursing facility, or some other type of care. And help us understand, what are some reasons a person might end up in the hospital and then not be able to go home when they're medically ready? Well, someone could end up in the hospital and then not be able to go home when they're medically ready because they don't have a home to go back to, or because they're what we call precariously housed, which means like they're couch surfing, someone's house, living in someone's basement, or their their home is really not safe for them to go back to for several reasons. Um, it might not be clean. They might need a little bit of help, and there's a situation at home where the people that live there can't help them or other types of reasons. And I know that you also deal with situations of family abandonment, in particular with senior citizens as well. Yes, we do run into that uh, a fair amount, or we have We'll have family members who don't want to pursue guardianship to help with their parent or other relative, or maybe they're estranged from their family, or maybe they have no family. And so it's not safe for them to go home. What's the longest a person has stayed in Denver Health without a clear medical need? About 1,566 days. So that comes out to more than four years. Yes, that's right. Who pays for the $2,700 per night in a situation like that? Well, at Denver Health, uh, you know, the dollars that we receive come either from taxes or from the uh, gain that we can make from commercial insurance, meaning that when we are paid for insured patients, we receive an amount that is in excess of our cost, and then we can use that to help offset the cost of these other patients. It's something that's called the cost shift that's been talked about quite a bit lately. But the issue is, if 
the number of these patients continues to increase, there's only so much that we can do to cost shift. And also consumers don't like that because it increases premiums. So we see this really as not a Denver health problem, but a community problem that we need to all work together to resolve. Right. So this is really a problem for everyone. And to be clear, you're not collecting money every night for when somebody's in the hospital past that medical need. Is that right? That's correct. We're not. Once the person no longer qualifies for inpatient care, even though they're in the hospital, Medicare, Medicaid, and insurance stop paying for them because they should be at another level of care. Yet because of laws and regulations, the hospital can't discharge the patient. And why does it cost so much per night? It, well, it, it costs so much because when you think about a hospital, we have to be uh, staffed with nurses and doctors. We have ratios that we need to meet. We need to make sure that we're complying with all regulations, and that costs money, and then equipment and all the things that go into hospital care. So hospital care is very expensive, and we want to be able to provide that care to those who need it which is another disadvantage of having someone in a hospital bed who really should be somewhere else, is that then we're less able to provide hospital services to the community when they need it. And are you able to put a number on how much it costs Denver Health per year? Well, it costs Denver Health, based on 2018 data, it costs Denver Health about $28 million. Mm. As I mentioned, there are various sources that we use to cover that. But if we were able to uh, place those patients either in short-term housing like we're talking about or nursing facilities or if they had a home to go home to, then we'd be able to take patients who should be in beds and we'd get revenue to cover that cost. And this is not just a matter of money. There's a health risk to patients who extend their hospital stays, right? Yes, that's absolutely right. And so uh, everyone knows that staying in the hospital longer increases the risk of infection or other things happening, even though there's been a lot of improvement in in trying to not have infections. But at Denver Health or any other hospital, that risk does exist. And then it's just not the right place for them to be to get better. If someone should be going home, uh, I think the evidence suggests that they can recover better at home, they're more comfortable, they can have outpatient appointments, manage their medication, and continue to get better a hospital is designated for taking care of someone's uh, issue that they have that requires really acute, uh, intense patient care. Then they need to go somewhere else where they can recover. So Denver Health has come up with an unusual solution. Tell me about it. Yes. So we have a building, 655 Broadway, that we've owned since 2007. We've used for an administration building since about that time and even longer, actually, under a lease. But in recent years, the building has started to deteriorate just because it's old. And there came a time when uh, putting money into it didn't make sense anymore to keep it going. It really needs a full rehab. Uh, at the same time, we were building 601 Broadway, where we were consolidating a lot of other administrative services from the campus. So we opted to move everything out of 65 Broadway and mothball it while we decided what to do to save utility cost and other cost. Then we worked with various entities trying to figure out what do we do with the building? Could we develop it? What, you know, could we work with, um, could we sell it? But as our community partner, Denver Housing Authority, stepped forward and we started to talk about the idea of that site for a low-income senior housing project. And they're very excited about that. And they want to gut and remodel the whole building for one of their typical senior housing projects. 
we then came up with the concept of leasing a floor for 15 units for low-income seniors. They need to meet the criteria to get into the Denver Housing uh, Project. So it would be low-income seniors who Denver Health controls the placement of, and that helps us get patients out of the hospital who meet the criteria that I talked about. They don't have a home to go to or they don't have a safe home, we, but it really is short-term housing for us. We want to be able to place them in that unit and then work intensively to try to obtain long-term or permanent housing for them. And I understand you're actually going to be hiring staff to help with that transition. So we're going to be hiring a case manager for the project who will assist the patients with making appointments, with getting their medications filled, with needs that they might have like transportation or food delivery so that they can be successful in their new environment. In addition to that, Denver Housing Authority is contributing some staff as well. Um, and, and those staff will serve the whole building, but they'll also help with our patients. And it's at a relatively low cost, which as CFO, I like. And when do you anticipate that these apartments will be available? They're expected to open up in the latter part of 2021. And we've got about a minute left. I do wonder, is there a risk that patients will end up in this transitional housing for longer than intended? That's one of the things we've thought about a lot because that's not our intent. It doesn't help us at all if we place 15 patients and then we're done. They can't go anywhere else. So that's why we have a lot of relationships going with um, Denver Housing Authority, with other community partners, with Colorado Coalition for the Homeless, to work to uh, ensure placement for these people for the future. And also, that's why we're starting out relatively small. It's an experiment. Peg, thank you so much for being here. Thank you, Avery. Peg Burnett is the Chief Financial Officer for Denver Health. It's partnering with Denver Housing Authority to provide affordable housing on the hospital campus. Sixteen-year-old climate and environmental activist Greta Thunberg is in Denver today for a climate strike. The event is part of Thunberg's Fridays for Future strikes where students walk out of school demanding action against climate change. In the last year, the young Swedish activist has been sweeping the world, traveling to the UN Climate Summit last month by boat and delivering a speech that quickly went viral. People are suffering. People are dying. Entire ecosystems are collapsing. We are in the beginning of a mass extinction, and all you can talk about is money and fairy tales of eternal economic growth. How dare you! There was even talk that she'd be awarded the Nobel Peace Prize today. While that didn't happen, Thunberg has clearly captured the attention of the world. So, how did she become one of the most well known climate activists as a teenager? Let's get some perspective from Somini Sangupta, the international climate correspondent for the New York Times. She profiled Thunberg earlier this year. Hi, Somini. Hi there. In your profile of her, you described Thunberg as an unlikely, though not entirely accidental, activist. Can you expound on that for me? Yeah, so I went to Stockholm, which is where she's from, in February, and um, I hung out for like seven hours on the streets of Stockholm while she was on her protest, on her solo school strike. By then, she was quite, uh, she was a bit well-known, and so she had lots of people joining her. 
I called her an accidental, though not unlikely, activist because she is quite an unusual child. She described herself as being, for most of her life, the invisible girl, the invisible girl who didn't talk very much. She's always been very quiet, very shy. And she's very open about having been diagnosed with Asperger's syndrome, which is a part of the autism spectrum disorder. And she told me about when she was younger, she learned about the environmental destruction of habitats, um, polar bears losing their habitats in the Arctic, the destruction of the marine environment, you know, along with the rest of her classmates. But she said she couldn't stop thinking about that. She couldn't get those images out of her head. She became really quite obsessed with it. And that is one of the hallmarks of children with Asperger's. They can be very single-minded, very focused on one thing. And this, for a long time, was a source of great pain for her. She felt very isolated. She said she felt very sad. She didn't really have much of a social life, and she stopped going to school. She even stopped eating, and she fell into a really, really deep depression. And then something remarkable happened. She said that she started learning as much as possible about the environment and about climate change, and she started to convince her own family, her parents, to do something about it. So she first persuaded them to stop eating meat, to become vegan, and then she persuaded her mother, who's quite a famous singer in Sweden, to stop flying. And she said it felt really good to be listened to. And then one Monday in August um, of 2018, she decided that she would go on a school strike. And this was a uh, her solo act of civil disobedience. She skipped school with her parents' permission. She had a homemade sign that said, uh, school strike for the climate. And she sat outside. And word quickly spread. She kept on this, this ritual of a weekly strike. It became a Friday school strike. Then she, you know, that sort of began her ascent. And she has become, at age 16, possibly the most famous climate activist in the world today. And when you met her in Stockholm, she described herself as an invisible girl. But how did she strike you? She struck me as being small for her age, extremely focused on what she was doing, very quiet. She had very few words it was clear, and she said as much, that uh, she only said what she thought was necessary. She was not into small talk. And she, you know, having watched her for these many months, it's also very clear to me that her economy with words and her very blunt and wry and sometimes very sarcastic style has become really her, her signature. So she had this period of really deep sadness about climate change. Do you know how she's doing now? You know, taking action on this issue of climate change that had exercised her so much and that had made her so depressed, taking action and having her parents listen to her first and then having other people listen to her, she says that that has healed her. She is no longer, she no longer um, feels like she's socially isolated. Um, and indeed, she is not. She is one of the most prominent activists in the, in the world. 
Over the last year or so, youth climate activism, it's exploded across the world. But what makes Thunberg really stand out from other young activists who don't get the same attention? So for many adults, we hear projections by climate scientists of what's going to happen in 2040 or 2050, and it can seem a bit like an abstract thing in the future. I think what makes Greta Thunberg and the other youth climate activists so unusual is that they can personalize the future. It's our future, they keep saying, not something that's, you know, far away and hard to imagine. I think by calling the school strikes Fridays for the future, they've been able to do that really simply and succinctly. And this is an issue that speaks um, very vividly and very powerfully to this generation, the issue of climate change and the need to um, avert the most catastrophic impacts of climate change. And is there something that you can tell me about what you learned about Thunberg's life beyond fighting climate change? I find her to be also pretty courageous. I think taking the decision to get on a solar-powered racing yacht, you know, uh, and being on it for two weeks to get from Europe across the Atlantic Ocean to New York, you know, that takes some courage, that takes some fortitude. The other thing I think that is very unusual about Greta Thunberg is that she seems to have a family that is um, deeply respectful of her wishes and her passion and has really supported her. So, Mini, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you. So, Mini Sam Gupta is the international climate correspondent for The New York Times and profiled Greta Thunberg earlier this year. Thunberg is in Colorado today to participate in a climate strike with local youth, youth activists like 13-year-old Haven Coleman of Denver. Ballots for the November election start going out in the mail today. One issue voter will decide is Proposition DD. It decides both the future of sports betting in Colorado and state water projects at the same time. CPR's climate and environment reporter Michael Elizabeth Sackis explains how the two are intertwined. If you vote this November, you'll see Proposition DD. A yes vote would legalize sports betting in Colorado and place a 10% tax on casinos' house winnings. The state could collect a capped amount of $29 million a year, and most of it would fund Colorado's water plan. James Eklund, the plan's architect, stands along the Platte River in Denver. It took us about three years of nonstop hard work to get that done. Former Governor John Hickenlooper gave Eklund the job of leading the statewide plan. Its main goal is to fix Colorado's looming crisis, not enough water to meet the growing demand by mid-century, all worsened by climate change. Some of the climate change models that we see showing Denver having the climate of Albuquerque in 30 years or maybe sooner, that is going to stress our water systems like the one we're on the banks of today. And that stress is going to cost us money to address. In all, the plan calls for $20 billion in funding over the next 30 years. Eklund says water users will pay for most of that, but there's a $3 billion gap. 
that's where Proposition DD comes in. Having watched the experience that transportation and education and other sectors have gone through in terms of asking for more money from the people of the state, we knew that just going to them with a tax increase was not going to be very likely to be successful. Because with Colorado's Taxpayers' Bill of Rights, voters decide whether or not to raise taxes on themselves, which they rarely do. So the state is relying more on these so-called sin taxes. Legalized marijuana means money for schools, a cigarette tax for health programs, and profits from the Colorado lottery go to Great Outdoors Colorado. That's why Eklund invited me to where the South Platte and the Cherry Creek meet in Confluence Park in downtown Denver. It was cleaned up in part by Colorado lottery money. If you had been around Denver in the 1970s and 80s and you came to where we're standing today, you would have seen rusted out vehicles, shopping carts, trash, debris. The Environmental Defense Fund says that Proposition DD is modeled after Great Outdoors Colorado, which voters approved in 1992 to redirect lottery money to fund a range of recreational and environmental projects, more than $1.2 billion since its start. Brian Jackson is with the Environmental Defense Fund. Because money and water are scarce in Colorado, you have to find kind of strange bedfellows. We saw an opportunity to attach water to something that is sweeping the nation. Sports betting. 18 states have already legalized it after the U.S. Supreme Court overturned the federal ban last year. Jackson says this opportunity also means no moneyed opposition. The gaming industry has thrown its financial support behind Proposition DD to create this new industry despite the tax that comes with it. This is how taxation rolls in Colorado in the last 20 plus years has only raised taxes through sins. It's just unfortunately the name of the game. Jackson met with Democratic State Representative and House Majority Leader Alec Garnett to share his idea. Garnett sponsored the bill and agreed to attach it to water. He says lawmakers argued with him about where the money from sports betting might go. Some threatened to not vote for the bill if he didn't change it to education or transportation. Garnett says he eventually got the votes once more supporters came forward. The corn growers, it was the Farm Bureau, it was the entire spectrum of organizations that rely on water that were coming and saying you have to go in this direction. There's no organized opposition to legalizing sports betting in Colorado, but there's one group that's against the money supporting the water plan. Gary Walkner is with Coloradans for Climate Justice. He doesn't like that Proposition DD isn't specific on what parts of the water plan would get funded. It would basically be a slush fund for the legislature to spend on whatever they want to spend on. And it could include and probably would include new river-destroying dams and diversions on our state's already severely depleted rivers. Back on the banks of the Platte River in Denver, James Eklund, the architect of the plan, argues that no action makes the situation more dire. We have this gap between supply and demand that is going to hit us. And if we don't plan for that, then the dams and reservoirs are going to be built without environmental mitigation. We are not going to have the stream health that is called for in our state water plan. I'm Michael Elizabeth Sackis, CPR News. Election day is Tuesday, November 5th. Again, ballots start going out in the mail today. And Colorado Matters continues in the next half hour on a musical note. From writing songs for the stage to a popular band that was only supposed to perform once. I'm Avery Lill. This is CPR News. 
When Colorado legalized recreational weed all the way back in 2012, not a single line of that amendment that eventually became part of our Constitution dealt with the negative impacts of the war on drugs. But states that are looking to legalize today are thinking about those things. The big question is, will it work? Find out on the latest episode of On Something, the new podcast from CPR News. Subscribe for free wherever you listen. You're back with Colorado Matters from CPR News. I'm Avery Lill. And for the rest of the show, we're getting musical. Let's start with a complicated mother-daughter relationship, undocumented residents, and immigration, and the sultriest tribute to a national park that you've ever heard. Yellowstone, every day is the first time. The musical Miss You Like Hell is currently playing at the Fox Theater in Aurora. The music and lyrics for this complex story were written by Aaron Matone. Aaron, welcome to the program. Good morning. Great to be here. You're a singer yourself. You're doing a series of concerts in the area this weekend. We'll talk about that in a bit, but I understand you actually saw Miss You Like Hell last night. What's it like watching your words and music being played out before you? Oh my goodness, it's a delight. It's a, it's a total surprise. It almost feels like uh, I'm not the writer of it, which is which is great. It took us seven years to write this musical, so I lived with it intimately for a many, many years. And it's really great to be able to go to um, such a, a beautiful, like unique, cool room like the Aurora Fox and to just sit there and get to watch a, a piece of theater and enjoy it. Wow, so it's the better part of a decade does it look on stage like you imagined while you were writing these songs? No, it never does. It never does. And that's the joy of getting to go visit um, uh, and get to do multiple productions is because all we give folks is uh, the music, the score, the script. Everything else is up to people's imaginations. And um, and the, the folks at the Aurora Fox have a beautiful imagination. So I was really happy with them. Um, they have a, a, a beautiful storytelling with projections and um, we've never seen that in any of our productions before. So that was this, this beautiful new layer of taking what's happening in front of you and adding these projections behind it, which tell a whole secondary layer of a story. Because there's really a lot of artistic license. I understand you also saw it in Baltimore recently, and it was different there. Yeah, I saw it in Baltimore last weekend, and um, I saw it in Boston earlier this year. I've been saying it's kind of like a like a Blue Apron like meal kit delivery service. Kind of like <laughs> you get this box, and, and the things you need for the musical are in the box, but it's up to you to sort of put them together and kind of create your own version of it. And um, I mean, I, I think that's the greatest gift is that now it's getting to go all over the country and be part of the communities that it's serving. And, um, you know, I won't be able to get to see all of them, but I, I feel um, really heartened knowing that people are having the opportunity to create their own version. I love that. A director is a sort of theater chef. Yeah, exactly. Uh, as we said, there is so much being conveyed in this show, immigration, mothers and daughters, and a lot of emotion comes from the music. You were working on that music at the same time someone else was writing the script. 
how did that collaboration with playwright Chiara Alegria Judas work? It's kind of like a, a five-dimensional crossword puzzle. That's that's how I think about it, or like a Rubik's Cube that has like a mind of its own. So you put it in one configuration and you think you've got it, and then it moves on to another one. You have to solve it again. So if you change something in a song, then it changes what needs to happen in the scene that happens before the song. Oh. And then once you change something that happens in the scene before the song, then maybe it means a later song is going to resonate in a different way. And um, Kiara, who is... Uh, a much decorated, wonderfully talented playwright, is also a really great musician. So I'd be able to send her a demo of a song. So something that was maybe the idea of how it would sound, maybe some suggested lyrics, and she'd be able to see where the song could go and make specific suggestions to it. And by the end of the project, um, we were sort of up in each other's stuff all the time. So there are lines in the show that I've written. There's pieces of music that she's written, and the lyrics remained the place where we collaborated most closely. And there's this idea that at any given time, someone on stage somewhere is singing your songs. Yeah, that that blows my mind, you know, because for, for many years, more than 20 years, I've been a, a singer-songwriter traveling around the world, making records, uh, writing songs, singing songs. And for my music to happen uh, in a room, my body had to be there. And um, and now it doesn't. And it's, it's a real thrill. Um, you know, every once in a while, when I know a production's up, I'll look at my watch at like 10 o'clock at night. And I'll be like, okay, people are hearing this song at this time right now. And hopefully having, um, you know, what we hope at the end of Miss You Like Hell is a, um, a cathartic and also like connected, thoughtful experience about mothers and daughters and undocumented people. And if you've never written a musical before, how did you get involved with Miss You Like Hell? Oh, gosh, this is this is crazy. Um, I got an email through my website. Kiara, um, like I said, is a well-known, decorated playwright, and she had a play she wanted to turn into the musical, a play called 26 Miles, and she knew that she wanted a female um, composer to do that, and um, she basically asked her friends, like, what are some female singer-songwriters I don't know about? And uh, someone that she grew up with that went to the same college as me, who I don't know, uh, but had been at the same college at the same time as me, knew about my music. And uh, gave her a record that I made in 2009. And she wrote me a blind email through the email spam catch-all on my website. Uh, And she wrote it as if, you know, I got emails like this all the time. You know, I know you've got 20 other proposals to write a musical, but please listen to this one. And um, I've never gotten an email like that in my life. And then seven years later. Seven years later. If I had known it was going to be seven years, if I had known, this is by far the most challenging project I've ever made. Um, It called on all my skills as an arranger, all my skills as a writer, all my skills as a record producer, a multi-instrumentalist. I had to use all of that um, and theater fan to, to be able to fully complete this project. And if I had known how hard it would be or how long it would have taken, I might have been like, mm, no, but I had no <laughs> idea. And um, and Kiara is, is a real gift of a person. And so I won the lottery in terms of who I could have this first experience with. But you said that you'd do it again. I know I'm dumb enough to do it again. Yeah, I've got another one that I'm that I've got in the pipeline that I'm trying to work out. That's exciting. We heard a little bit of that song Yellowstone earlier. Again, it's kind of a torch song. How did you come up with that? <laughs> well, we, um, you know, one of the one of the themes of of this musical. I mean, it, it's uh, it's important that this mom and daughter are driving across the United States together, and this is something I have a lot of personal experience with, having been a touring musician for years. Um, there is 
an enormous sensuality to the United States and to its natural beauty. I mean, you know this because you all live in Colorado and you live like right with the mountains in your face all the time. Um, But I don't know that people always think about the United States as like a sensual, sensuous, like beautiful place, especially its natural resources. Um, Those are kind of two feelings that don't always go together, but they've always been intertwined for me and for Kiara as well. Like, um, there's just a passion that we feel in the natural world and in a place like a national park where we are really um, set aside, focused and and allowed to really be in that space. Um, it just made sense to us that how would we and how would this character in our show, Pearl, Junior Yellowstone Ranger, how would she express this deep sensual love it's not necessarily sexual um but it's a it's a deep feeling that you want to share with other people and um and it is funny and it's important that it's funny and it's a moment of levity in in a complicated show um but it's also just really true like why not a slow jam for yellowstone (laughs) national park why not it's funny but it's still sultry You're with Colorado Matters from CPR News. I'm Avery Lill, and we're talking with Erin McKeown. She wrote the music and lyrics for Miss You Like Hell, which is entering its final week at the Fox Theater in Aurora. Let's hear another song from the production. This is Now I'm Here. Monarch butterflies take the A-train. Moby Dick swims the Great Plains. Kitty Hawk decides to bike it. The world is upside down, and I like it. I used to read to escape, to be anywhere but here. Now I'm here. I used to read to run away, so I could disappear. Now I'm here. Here I am. Here we are. Present and sky and stars. This was obviously such a long process, writing this musical. How often over the seven years you were writing would you and Kiara get together, coordinating schedules and all that stuff? Yeah, um, Kiara put uh, Kiara made a baby <laughs> and wrote two plays during this time, and I put out uh, two and a half albums and a bunch of touring, so we would work it in between those things. So we would set aside um, a month to six weeks at a time, two or three times a year. Uh, Kiara lives in New York City, and I live in rural western Massachusetts, so we actually wrote a ton of it on Skype. So we'd get on and turn it on, the Skype might be on for like five hours or six hours, and we'd be typing on a a Google Doc together, or I'd be sitting at my piano, or she'd be singing me songs from her office. And um, and that's that's how we did it. And then we were lucky to have um, a few workshops and readings uh, where we were able to be in the same room with the rest of our team over that process. But um, yeah, like Skype, basically. Wow, what a way to use technology. Would you do songs from the show as a part of your concerts over that time? I never did because um, there was something about the way, well, like I was saying before, this like Rubik's Cube with a mind of its own meant that the songs never felt finished. And um, so if I wanted to, in 2014, wanted to sing that song, Now I'm Here, we just heard, it would have had different lyrics and it would have had maybe a different bridge and had like its shape wouldn't have been the same. And um, there's something about performing me with performing a song for an audience that like is like taking it out of the oven like it's finished being baked and um it just didn't it didn't feel right for that the other thing was i could never remember them you know all the songs <laughs> that i've written over the years from my own records you know um are all in my head somewhere and i can basically recall them but the songs from miss you like hell um 
couldn't couldn't stay in my mind. And I think it's because I wrote them for other scenarios, other characters, other people. Um, but now, now that the thing is out there and uh, fully baked and the Blue Apron meal kit sent around the country, um, I do put maybe three, four of them in my show uh, every night and do a nice little chat about this is what the musical is. And, um, and it's been really fun to try to uh, connect those worlds. I feel like it's a a project of mine as an artist is that that people who like musicals I think would like concert music um singer songwriter music rock music and and vice versa and I'm trying to get the people from who are in the room at the theater I'm trying to get them to the concert hall and I'm trying to go vice versa there's um there's a number of people like me who are making musicals now at all different levels I mean I think Sarah Bareilles wrote Waitress which is I think like the best most famous version of it right now. But there's a lot of people who have been like me, like singer-songwriters for years, who are trying to bring some of that sensibility to theater. Well, why don't we go out with some more music from Miss You Like Hell. This is Lioness. I am a lioness. I am a warrior. I am the beast to wait. It's foot out the trap, it's a battle, it's natural to fight your way back one mile at a time. Closer to grace, she's on the horizon, Erin, thank you for joining us. Oh, it's been my pleasure, thank you so much for having me. Singer-songwriter Erin McKeown is appearing tonight at Elizabeth Hotel in Fort Collins, Saturday at Swallow Hill in Denver, and Sunday in Colorado Springs as a part of Friends House Concert Series. She wrote the music and lyrics for Miss You Like Hell, which is in its final weekend at the Fox Theater in Aurora. When we come back, the music continues with a Colorado band that was only supposed to perform together for one show. Needless to say, that didn't happen. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. I'm Avery Lill. One of Colorado's most prominent bands was only supposed to play one show. Singer Johnny Burroughs got together with a horn section from the University of Northern Colorado and played that show in 2013. He's never really stopped. The Greeley band, now called The Burroughs, makes danceable music that evokes classic soul and funk acts like James Brown and Parliament Funkadelic. The band's four-part horn section complements Johnny's buoyant vocals and energetic stage presence. We go walking through the trees The birds around us out to sing It seems the earth and sky agree That we were meant to be Forever in love The Burroughs will perform in Beaver Creek, Denver, and Fort Collins later this month. Johnny Burroughs and saxophonist Brianna Harris join us now. Welcome. Hey, Thank thanks you. for having us. Johnny, you formed the Burroughs with the idea that the play would, that the band would just play one show. Right? Yeah, yeah. We just got together with uh, some friends. Uh, I put a rhythm section together with my friends and a trumpeter named Craig Basserich from University of Northern Colorado put the horn section together. We really just wanted a community of friends that could play the music we love, old soul music, old funk music, 
And we're like, let's play one show, and uh, and then it'll be done. If we ever want to get together and jam, that'll be great. But, I mean, we're here six years later, and the thing's just snowballed. How did you decide to keep it going? Uh, honestly, it was, it was, it was from, uh, I mean, not to sound too... Uh, boasting, but it was from demand, honestly. We played our one show and immediately got offered several other shows, immediately got offered events that we could play with. Uh, and we also just had so much fun. Like, it just clicked. That first night was really magical, and we couldn't stop. Several of the band members are alumni of the University of Northern Colorado in Greeley. Brianna, you and two of your bandmates now teach music there. How does the university factor into the Burroughs story? So... Uh, University of Northern Colorado has a long history of having a great school of music, and many of us met through that program, and um, it just, you know, I think gave us a really great musical foundation that we've been able to apply to this band and any other musical project. So, and it still remains like a really supportive community. Mm-hmm. You know, we're fr- close friends with a lot of the faculty um, there and a lot of the alumni, and it's always been a really supportive place. Yeah. And we don't get a lot of musical acts from Greeley on the show. <laughs> How is the music scene there? Uh, honestly, it's it's really awesome. It's burgeoning, especially all of Northern Colorado. Uh, but I, what I would say is is the defining factor is it's incredibly supportive. Uh, it's been a dream to be able to grow up and make music there. Well, not grow up, but grow up as a band mm-hmm. in that area and make music just because the community and the support in Greeley and other parts of Northern Colorado uh, has just been, it's really like a family Um, So it's like having your family at your shows, like the support we get to be a part of, the community that we're in. um, That's the defining factor. So there might not be as many bands as Denver. It might not be as hopping as Denver. uh, But really that community support, that family support is fantastic. Now, Johnny, you're a licensed minister. I am. You grew up (laughs) with regular gigs, performing music at your family's church in Greeley. How does that upbringing influence your performances with the Burroughs? Oh, man, I mean, it infor- um, uh, everything I do in my life is influenced by that. Uh, and my performances, honestly, uh, growing up uh, playing church music and understanding how to connect with something bigger than myself and also understanding how to connect with people uh, has given me the ability when I step on stage with the Burroughs to honestly take people to a higher place. My goal is to take everybody that's in that crowd. I want to connect with every single person. And then I want us as a cohesive group to get to somewhere higher. Uh, and so that training like, uh, uh, is, is, has allowed me that no matter where I'm at, I'm going to take you to a higher place. Uh, so, um, I'm grateful to have grown up playing music like that. And also, I I was able to scream a lot doing that music. So <laughs> now when I step on stage, I can just yell and scream and be as crazy as I want to be because that's, that's all I've ever done. <laughs> and obviously, this goes so much further than just the Burroughs. This year, you released a solo album of spiritual worship music. I did, yeah. Is the songwriting method different for that music than it is for the Burroughs? Uh, honestly, no. I mean, um, when I'm writing music, it, it's, it's really whatever I'm feeling in the moment. Uh, I really like to sit down, uh, and just let what comes out, come out. Um, you know, if it's a song that's going to be about my wife, it's going to be about a girl, it's going to be about my frustrations with society. If it's going to be about the Lord, like 
whatever is me in that moment. That's what I like to tap into. Uh, so that the songwriting process wasn't different. The the after process, after I've created the song, was much different because then it's still just me crafting every single piece of how it should sound. Where when it's the Burrows, I'll write the song and then I'll bring it to them and then it gets to evolve because all of their all of their spirits, all of their brains are getting involved in what's happening and it becomes a Burroughs song. Yeah. And it sounds like just being present is a really big part in both of those songwriting processes. Oh, huge, huge part, huge part. I should probably be better about not having to be so present and just being able to work. <laughs> but, you know, that's the struggle. <laughs> Brianna, you are one of the two saxophonists for the Burroughs. Mm-hmm. And the band has a trumpet and trombone player as mm-hmm. well. How did the band's horn arrangements come together? That's a really good question. Uh, so all four of us have written horn parts for the band over the years. Uh, currently... Most of it is split between myself and then our trumpet player, Alec Bell, who's a great horn arranger. Um, And that's the piece of the band that, you know, because you're operating as a unit, as a section, it almost always is the last piece to come together um, because you're coordinating four people's brains at once instead of just one. Um, But typically Johnny will bring something in, we'll workshop it, and then it'll kind of get taken back and, you know, cohesively arranged. for the section and it's really fun to operate as a horn section. It's a real privilege to do that um, and just have that community and have that kind of sound and style. I and it's it... a privilege to get to have that in the music. This year you released two signal- singles called, including The Slip. Yes. <laughs> the trouble didn't end there cause when I got home my landlady was waiting for me. And she was like, Johnny, your rent is two weeks past due. And I was like, oh, you know what? My money's in my jacket. It's inside the apartment. And when she turned around to open the door, you know what I did? I gave her the slip. I gave her the slip. Got to make my guts away. I gave her the slip. Uh. Show them how you slip now. song it has a narrative centered around you johnny uh, yes <laughs> is it based on an actual event <laughs> uh no no not at all uh not one you can tell us not about. not one i can tell no no um but it was fun when i started writing the song i uh, obviously wanted a really strong james brown groove and actually was pulling from a lot of like 90s music uh a lot of people were stealing from james brown and, and reworking it um, and when I was writing the story, um, I was like, well, I could write a story. I want like someone's everyday life that they're trying to get out of something. So what are some situations that I would want to get out of? So uh, it wasn't necessarily an autobiographical story, but I put myself in a lot of places and just thought, what would I react if this weird thing happened? And then what happened if that led right into the next thing? And it was really fun. It's fun to put on a character and create something. That's so entertaining. Yeah. Brianna, mm-hmm. you recorded these new songs at Color Red, a Denver-based music label and studio. How did you connect with them? Yeah, so we had uh, just seen the kinds of music they were pumping out. It's a fairly new uh, label um, and had been really impressed by the quality and variety of music they've been releasing. They release new original music every week. Um, and so I reached out to kind of the creative director of that label, um, Mike Tallman, who's a great producer, guitarist, plays with this band, Euphorchestra. Um, and he, you know, just said we'd love to work with them. He brought us in. And so we went and recorded these tracks in March of this year. And 
uh, both Mike and also Kim Dawson, who's an excellent vocalist in the area, performs with a lot of groups, produced these tracks with us. They have a really cool studio in the uh, basement of this house in Denver. Um, they have, you know, track to tape. So it's kind of this vintage vibe that's applied to modern music. And it's yeah. a very cool collaborative space and project. Yeah. So let's talk holidays. The boroughs put on a themed shows every Halloween. You've done <laughs> Star Wars, Space Jam, The Avengers. <laughs> but this year, the plan might be the most ambitious. Yeah, for sure. <laughs> Tell me about it. Yeah, so this year we're doing the music of Woodstock. Uh, and it just kind of all started on a whim doing theme shows. We wanted to do something fun. We would do it at our, our home uh, venue, the Moxie Theater in Greeley. Uh, and yeah, we did a lot of real nerdy stuff. Um, <laughs> but this year we wanted to tackle something that would give us uh, a really wide musical range. And we actually did a preview of some of the songs last night uh, at a show we did, just a little pop-up show. And I was talking about the fact that it's really fun because as you dig into Woodstock, there's all the artists you know. You know, there's Jimi Hendrix and Janis Joplin and Sly and the Family Stone and Joe Cocker and, and artists like that. But there was such a culture of covering music back in the day. Everybody just did covers of everyone. Everyone shared songs that you're really playing from artists like Ray Charles and, and you're playing uh, from artists like Bobby Blue Bland and like other artists like old soul artists are also inside of Woodstock because mm -hmm. they were being covered by the artists that were there. So it's been really ambitious. Uh, the shows were packing over 30 songs into 90 minutes. Um, and so they're really, it's going to be breakneck like just jams nonstop the whole night. Those are huge names you're mentioning. Yeah. How are you going to pull this off? <laughs> a lot of practice Lots and preparation. Yeah, some really serious musical preparation, actually. Yeah, yeah, we've really been working hard digging into it. We want to make these shows something that uh, is something that people have never seen before and that they're going to walk away feeling really served and really uplifted and like they experience something new. Johnny and Brianna, thank you for coming by. Oh, thank, thank you so you. much. The Burroughs perform October 24th at the Villar Performing Arts Center in Beaver Creek and the 25th at Ophelia Electric Soapbox in Denver. They're celebrating the 50th anniversary of Woodstock. And on the 26th, they're performing at Washington's in Fort Collins. That's Colorado Matters. Thanks for joining us. I'm Avery Lil. You're with CPR News.